why this focus on um, European Western empires, and I think it's because the target is, is not the past at all, it's the present West. So that the target is the record of the West. Um, and, and the accusation is that the West, whether it's the United States or whether it's uh, Britain, uh, and by extension other European countries, uh, we are systematically racist. We have to reject our colonial history, our imperial history, because it is centrally, essentially racist. And we have to do that in order to, to prove ourselves to be non-racist now. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Nigel Bigger, who until his recent retirement was Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. Nigel was appointed CBE in 2021 for services to higher education. His latest book, Colonialism and Moral Reckoning, was released in February. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Professor Nigel Bigger, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Uh, thanks a lot for the invitation. I look forward to uh, talking with you. So your book, uh, Colonialism and Moral Reckoning, went straight onto the Sunday Times bestseller list. Yes, I'm glad to say. <laughs> Before we you dive into it, could you tell us a bit about the challenges you had getting it published? Yes, indeed. Um, so about five years ago, in December 2017, I, I, I fell into the cultural war on colonialism. Um, I can talk more about that if you want, but... Um, as a consequence of that, one of the upsides was in, in early 2018, a commissioning editor at Bloomsbury Publishing came to me and said, why don't you write um, an intelligent person's guide to colonialism? And I thought about it and I said, yes, we signed a contract. And then I produced the manuscript um, with about nine hours to spare on, the, on New Year's Eve on uh, um, the 31st of December 2020. And uh, my editor uh, looks at, at the manuscript and in early 21 wrote to me and said he was speechless with admiration for its rigour and its comprehensiveness. He said it was an important book and he predicted sales of 15 to 20,000 copies. <clears throat> then it went into the copy editing process. They produced a cover. But three months later, in, in March 2021, I got an email from the top of Bloomsbury announcing that they were uh, postponing publication indefinitely because, and I quote, um, public feeling was unfavorable. And um, be, being a man of a certain age, I'm, I'm not always in touch with my emotions, but my wife reports that I was devastated. <laughs> uh, partly devastated at the prospect that my book might not ever get read, um, but more devastated at the thought that we in Britain had come to the place where important uh, contributions to thinking about important public issues uh, would never see the light of published day because some publishers were too scared to publish it. That really depressed me. Um, but I, I, was, I wasn't willing to let Bloomsbury off uh, too easily. I had been told that they wanted me to walk away from my contract. I didn't do so. Uh, so I, I engaged in, in innocent email correspondence with them. Which public feeling are you concerned about? Because there's more than one public feeling out there. Under what conditions would, would publication become possible again? And there were a couple of rounds of correspondence in which, predictably, Bloomsbury um, 
chance of nothing. And then uh, in an email in April 21, uh, the Bloomsbury uh, manager uh, said to me, I, I'm sure you're uh, impatient to have this published, so we're going to return your contract to you. Right. Um, I then paid several hundred pounds to a, a lawyer to try and find, it, find out if I could hold him to my contract and discovered because of a certain clause I couldn't. And then I told Bloomsbury what I thought of them. Uh, the good news is uh, in August 21, uh, another publisher, William Collins, uh, uh, picked up the book and gave me a contract and they brought it out three weeks ago. So the story has a happy ending. <laughs> Brilliant. We like those. So in today's world of uh, cancel culture, if someone does something wrong, they, they vanish from the public eye. I think a lot of historical accounts of uh, things such as the Empire take a similar approach. That bad things happened, it should be thrown onto the rubbish dump of history. Yes. But the British Empire was a force in, in shaping the modern world bigger than pretty much any other. Yes. So to come to this moral reckoning that your book talks about, do we need some kind of balance sheet where we've got the bad things that happened here and the good things that happened and we try and weigh them up? Yeah, I, I certainly think so. Um, and I'm an, eth an ethicist, so my, my trade is um, analysing uh, moral problems and trying to come to a judgement about them. So I've, I've brought my trade to bear on the topic of empire because um, I noticed that um, Scottish nationalists and uh, people on the left and uh, particularly a gr group of younger historians, um, historian activists, uh, tell, t tell the tale that, that the British Empire was all about colonialism and slavery and the abhorrent racism that justified the enslavement of black people. So, so that the, nowadays the, the phrase colonialism and slavery is widely used as if the two things are the same thing. Um, and I'd, I'd read enough about uh, Britain's imperial colonial history to know that that simply is not true. I mean, yes, we, we spent 150, 200 years being involved in the slave trade and in um, um, uh, running slave plantations in the West Indies and the Southern American colonies. Uh, but you've got to put that in context. Um, everybody was into slavery. I mean, everybody from the ancient period until the modern period. Um, Arabs did slavery. Uh, long before Africans sold other Africans to European traders from about the mid-1400s onwards, they'd been selling African slaves to the Romans, then to the Arabs. Um, North American tribes like the Comanche had a vast slave economy uh, in the southwest of what's now the US in the 1700s. Um, so, so slavery was universal. Um, but uh, uh, what, what marked out the British, alongside some other European countries, was that in the early 1800s, uh, we were the f among the first states in the history of the world to abolish the slave trade. Denmark was the first, uh, but we uh, followed shortly thereafter in 1807. And in 1833, uh, Parliament published an act abolishing slavery uh, within the territories of, of the empire, and then Britain took the lead, um, suppressing slavery and the slave trade from Brazil across Africa to uh, India and, and Malaysia, and we continued to suppress slavery till the end of the empire in the 1960s. Uh, so you, you can't simply say that colonialism and slavery and racism are the same things, because for the second half of its life, the British empire was committed to suppressing slavery, 
on the largely Christian conviction that all human beings are equal regardless of race and regardless of cultural development in the eyes of, of God. Um, so, ironically, uh, in the later part of its life, the British Empire was committed to uh, that progressive um, um, uh, crusade. So if slavery was, was widespread throughout empires in history, why is the uh, such a focus from people calling for decolonization on the empires of the West? Wouldn't it be kind of more morally fair to focus on all no, of them? No, absolutely. Uh, that, that, that's a really important question and deserves a lot of thinking about because it, it is obvious um, that uh, no one cares, it seems, about um, uh, the empires of the ancient Near East or the Roman Empire or the the Muslim empires of the M Middle Ages or contemporary Chinese empire or Zulu empire of the 1820s. No one cares about those empires. They only seem to care about white empires or European empires. And let's include America in this too. So th that, that raises the question as to why. Um, why this focus on um, European Western empires? And I think it's because the target is, is not the past at all. It's the present West. So the, the target is the record of the West. Um, and and the accusation is that the West, whether it's the United States or whether it's uh, Britain uh, and by extension other European countries, uh, we are systematically racist. And we have to, to reject our, um, our, our world domination since uh, the 1700s we have to reject our colonial history, our imperial history, because it is centrally, essentially racist. And we have to do that in order to, to prove ourselves to be non-racist now. So that, that, I think, is what's going on. It's not an argument really about the past, or rather it's an argument about the past only because it's really uh, um, about the present. What were the motives behind the British Empire? Is there like, a bunch of power-hungry British guys who woke up one day and said, right, let's go take <laughs> over the world? No, no. I mean, uh, anyone who reflects on human life, even the lives of individuals, you, you, you know how kind of chaotic and messy and ad hoc human life is, and it's no different with states. Uh, so the British Empire, like I imagine most empires, uh, grew up, uh, responding to opportunities and threats. Uh, trade was an early motive. Um, certainly that's why the East India Company landed in uh, India in the uh, 1700s. Uh, before that, you've got uh, international rivalry, you've got Protestant England trying to fend off uh, the Catholic Spanish Empire, which is partly why you end up with the establishment of, of uh, small enclaves on the coast of North America. Uh, you, you've certainly got people who are hungry to, to discover gold, um, but you've also got, um, later on, you've got humanitarian concerns like the suppression of slavery. Uh, you've got, um, in some cases, you have uh, native peoples like the Maori in New Zealand in the late 1830s who ask for British, protect, British imperial protection because they're worried about um, um, uh, French uh, colonists or English colonists landing in New Zealand without any kind of overall control. Um, and, and then, of course, you've got um, 
wars like the First World War, at the end of which Britain ends up um, controlling um, Palestine and Iraq. So uh, you, you're quite right, Lee, there was, there was no, as it were, um, um, single dominant motive. Uh, no one woke up in London one day and said, let's go and conquer the world. I, I mean, there may, there may be some exceptions to that messy rule. I mean, uh, perhaps the Nazi empire, you could say, was a bit more coherent in the sense that uh, at its heart, at its crazed heart, was Hitler with his um, um, anti-Semitic obsessions. Um, so maybe that was more coherent, uh, but the British Empire certainly wasn't uh, um, wasn't coherent in that sense. Could you talk to us a bit about these two periods? So we got the first one where Britain benefited from the slave trade, and the second one where Britain was focused on abolishing the slave trade. How did the kind of the resources, the money, the effort expended in the two stack up against one another? Yeah, so that that's a really controversial issue. At least it was a controversial issue. Um, so the, the the there was um, a book published in 1940 by the Trinidadian academic and then uh, politician uh, Eric Williams, which argued that um, Britain's Industrial Revolution and the international political power it acquired on the back of the Industrial Revolution was uh, significantly fueled by the profits from the slave trade and slavery. Um, judging by the statement made by the doyen of um, historians of, of abolition, uh, an American historian called David Brian Davis in 2010, who said um, uh, that uh, Eric Williams' thesis has now been widely discredited. Uh, I think you, you will only find Marxists who believe that. Uh, it is controversial, but uh, uh, the, the, the weight of opinion is that, yes, uh, slavery uh, made a contribution to Britain's economic um, takeoff in the late 1700s, early 1800s, but it wasn't decisive. It wasn't, it wasn't enormous. Um, uh, but yes, uh, people did profit out of uh, trading in slaves and out of the slave plantations. However, um, uh, one economic historian has calculated that roughly in the 50-year period 1817 um, to 1867, the British spent as much in suppressing the slave trade across the Atlantic as uh, the British had made in profits from slavery in, in the 50 years leading up to the abolition of the, of the trade. Um, and that, that was only um, suppressing the Atlantic slave trade. Um, Britain went on to suppress slavery, as I said, across Africa and, and elsewhere in the world for a much longer period of time. I read in your book that there were actual ships, British ships, along the coast of Africa that were stopping mm -hmm. um, slaves from being taken out. Yes, so the, the, I think it was called the West Africa Squadron. Um, at one point, I think it, uh, the number of ships stationed there vary, but at its height um, in the 1830s or 40s, uh, there were 36 Royal Navy ships stationed off the coast of West Africa. Of course, coast of West Africa was not, not a healthy place. I, th I think I've read the figure that 17,000 uh, uh, Royal Navy sailors died um, uh, suppressing the Atlantic slave trade. Um, and at one point, uh, uh, the Royal Navy had devoted 13% of its total manpower 
just to manning those ships that were blocking um, slavers leading the coast of West, West Africa for Brazil. Um, and in the 1820s and 30s, the slave trade department was the largest unit in the, in the British Foreign Office. It, it, was a, it was a major focus of uh, Britain's international efforts. What brought about this sea change in Britain's views on slavery? Because it's an about turn, really. Yes, it, it was. Um, and I, I don't, to my knowledge, it's, it's not prece precedented anywhere else in the world. But in Europe, uh, there was Enlightenment thinking around the 1750s uh, that um, began to develop a view that enslaving other people is abhorrent. Um, but in England, um, the main impulse was religious. So among uh, English Protestants, English non-conformist Protestants, these, these are Protestants who didn't belong to the Church of England, but also a bit later among uh, evangelicals within the Church of England, um, John Wesley uh, was an Anglican priest, uh, but he eventually uh, um, founded what became the Methodist Church. Uh, um, these people d developed a view uh, um, on the basis of, of uh, the Christian Bible, uh, that um, to enslave other people is wrong because regardless of skin color, uh, everyone is a brother, is an equal uh, in the sight of God. Um, and this this movement gained traction from about the 1770s onwards, and so you have the, the founding of the um, Slavery Abolition Society in 1787. And remarkably, um, in the lead-up to the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, um, it has been calculated that around 30% of the male population of England, 30% signed petitions against slavery and in favour of, of, of abolition. And this, this, of course, is long before we have ma mass democracy in this country. Mm. So it, it, it was a really popular movement. Um, and it, in 1807, after um, 20, 25 years of campaigning, the abolitionists triumphed, uh, William Wilberforce triumphed uh, when the trade was abolished within the empire, and then they had to wait wait another um, 27 years until 1833 when uh, slavery was abolished throughout the empire. So it was a, all told as a 50-year-long campaign, a sustained campaign, when people like Wilberforce and others committed themselves for five decades to see slavery shut down. How did other powers in the world react to this? Well, a mixed reaction. So uh, Britain was not the first state to abolish the slave trade within its empire, Denmark. Uh, and I think, I think uh, France was in the 1790s, but then that was reversed um, uh, later on, I think, under Napoleon. Uh, then Denmark abolished the trade in 1804, but it, it wasn't until much later that it, abo it abolished slavery within Danish possessions, and Danish possessions were much, much smaller than the British ones. Uh, so there was, though, it's not true to say that, that the anti-slavery movement was only British. Of course, it was also um, present in, in, um, in um, the American colonies, in New England in particular, and it was also present in other European countries. Um, but because after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, Britain was the preeminent 
European and, if you include the US, Western power. Um, um, Britain took the lead. Uh, during the Congress of Vienna in 1815, Britain tried to persuade um, other European and American powers to um, end the slave trade um, with limited success. So it, took, it took a long time uh, for Britain to, to apply pressure diplomatically um, and sometimes using a bit of hard power against Brazil to get them to, to, to stop the slave trade. Um, but they were engaged in that for decades after the abolition of slavery in, in, in the British Empire. Britain benefited economically uh, from the empire, but a lot of the colonies also saw dramatic economic development um, from the empire as well. So was there an um, economic exploitation motive behind Britain uh, undertaking this empire? And can we come to any kind of informed view about whether the colonies would have been better off if Britain had just stayed at home? Yes, so as I said, trade uh, was a, a major motive for um, um, imperial and colonial endeavour, uh, and uh, people trade to make profits. I, I, I'm not a Marxist, I don't see anything wrong with making a profit. Um, um, but it is claimed uh, by some that, that um, the empire was all about economic exploitation and that Britain drained, for example, wealth from India. So the, uh, the Indian politician Shashi Tharoor makes that claim. Uh, I think the, the claim is that around 1700, uh, India generated something like 25% of the world's wealth, whereas by 1900 it was down to 2%, and this was because the British drained wealth from India. Uh, against that, the Bengali-born, now LSE-based economic historian, and Thiru is not an economic historian, uh, Tiatanka Roy, uh, will say, um, no, the, the, uh, the decline in the proportion of wealth produced by India was not because the British had robbed India, it was because um, European industrialising nations like Britain uh, um, um, as they developed, claimed an ever larger share of, of uh, global uh, GDP. Um, so it was simply that India's relative share of global, global GDP had, had declined. And besides, um, uh, China suffered exactly the same fate during the same period, uh, a, a decline in relative share, but China was never, never colonised. Um, so no, uh, Tatanka Roy... Uh, would argue the, the, the thesis that Britain drained India of its wealth is, is not true. Um, yes, uh, because Britain from the 1840s, mid-1840s onwards, uh, promoted free trade within the empire. That did mean that manu manufactured cloth from Manchester, let's say, could be imported to India, and it, it did put, put out of business lots of... Um, um, sort of cottage textile industry. It didn't it didn't eradicate it, but certainly uh, it uh, um, uh, uh, caused the market share of um, artisanal uh, uh, textile production to fall. But by the same token, uh, it allowed uh, Indian entrepreneurs uh, to come to England 
to uh, um, learn about industrial processes, to take back uh, technology and expertise to India, and to set up um, Indian-owned uh, enterprises producing textiles or producing steel. Uh, the, the famous Tata uh, company uh, started that way, uh, and they, they therefore benefited from a free trade and the free exchange of information uh, across the empire. So there were winners and losers in India, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't simply British winners and Indian losers. So decolonialism sees uh, imperialism as a racist endeavour. Um, was the British Empire racist? Uh, yes and no. So uh, certainly um, the justification for the enslavement of Africans in the... Um, 16 and 1700s, the justification was that these people um, uh, are natural, uh, are inferior and natural slaves, and therefore they deserve to be enslaved. Um, and and later, yes, uh, um, Britons uh, in the 19th century, the 20th century, did believe did belong to one of the most uh, scientifically, technologically advanced countries in the world the most powerful countries in the world, and uh, when you feel on top of the world, you are prone to become arrogant, and there were lots of arrogant Brits. Um, so there was plenty of racism in the empire, um, but there was also anti-racism, as I've said. I mean, the, the commitment of the empire to combat slavery was based on uh, a view that all human beings are fundamentally equal. So, so the, there's, there's, there's a real mixture there. Um, and you'll find, yes, there, there was a lot of racial uh, arrogance among settlers and planters in Africa and India. On the other hand, when Mahatma Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi as he was then, came to England in the late 1800s um, to study law, uh, he reports that he met with nothing but kindness. It was only when he went to South Africa that he discovered racism. Um, and... Uh, um, when Lord Willingdon turned up at a club in India, he, Lord Willingdon was the viceroy, he turned up at a club with, with an Indian uh, Maharaja and was uh, dismayed when the, his guest, the Maharaja, was refused entry because he was Indian. So what did Willingdon do? Well, he uh, decided to set up his own clubs uh, that were colorblind. <laughs> so you really have a... You have a, 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 a on the issue of racism, you, you have a really mixed... Uh, picture, um, but, but to, to say that the empire was essentially centrally racist is just not true. It was like a lot of um, racial tensions that happened in America are kind of um, planted here. Absolutely. But Britain is such a different place from America. You, you gave that example of Gandhi, but there was also an example in your book of Frederick Douglass that I thought was very interesting. Yes, no, indeed. Um, so, so one of uh, part of what has happened in terms of our present culture wars, Lee, is, is as you've suggested, that, um, and this really took, uh, there the, the was, the, the was, there were adumbrations of our current culture war over colonialism when the Rose Must Fall campaign arrived here from South Africa in about 2015. Um, but it was only in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, when that got transferred over here, uh, 
in 2021, I think it was, that, that the whole decolonizing project just took off. Um, and that was odd because, as you say, um, this, is, this is not America. <laughs> and although you know, we have had uh, problems with racism in this country um, since the 1950s, um, the history of race in, in this country is very different. So yes, when Frederick Douglass, the famous black abolitionist, came to England in 1845, he reported that he found among the English uh, uh, an almost complete dearth, absence, of the um, horrible racism that he uh, and other blacks in the US had suffered. Um, when uh, the US Army arrived in England in 1943, during the Second World War, the US Army wanted to impose a policy of segregation, so whites and blacks wouldn't mix in the same pubs, for example. And uh, there was a, a widespread uh, English popular reaction against that. And in Cabinet, the Secre Secretary of State for the Colonies protested against acquiescing in the policy of segregation. And when Desmond Tutu uh, came to England first in 1960 or thereabouts from South Africa, uh, I read this in his obituary at the end of 2020, I think, um, he discovered for the first time a society where police were polite to him as a black person, where as a black person he didn't have to stand in the back of queues. Um, so so the, the, uh, I'm not claiming that Britain is, is free of racism, uh, but the the history of racism in this country is, is very different from that of America. Um, but uh, for a number of reasons, I think partly uh, activists, anti-racist activists on the left, want, want, us, to, want us to believe that, that this country is systemically racist, and so uh, they, they, they had a political interest in making us believe that Black Lives Matter applies here as much as it does there. So I remember seeing a a photograph of a, of a young woman in, in a BLM protest here in England with a placard saying, disarm the police, not having noticed that in this country, normally, police are not armed at all. So there's a strange, strange failure to filter um, Black Lives Matter as applying to this country, and it, it, it's something that a lot of, uh, a lot of our journalists and our, our TV journalists and radio journalists have failed to do. It's very strange, but it needs to be... You're quite right to draw attention to that, Lee, because it needs to be pointed out that this is not America. You're a professor of theology and an ethicist, so rather than focusing just on recording historical events, you're more looking at their kind of moral status. Yes. So is it difficult to judge what people were doing 200 years ago at a time when the moral standards and the moral outlook were so different from now? Yeah, I think it is. I, mean, I think... Um, on the one hand, I think we, we are moral beings, so when we look at things in the past, um, we can be horrified by them. So we look at the conditions in which Africans were um, shipped from Africa to to the Americas, uh, and they were just dreadful. Um, uh, and and we 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 recoil with with moral horror. Um, so it, it's hard not to do that, and sometimes we should. But I, I do think um, we need to avoid being moralistic. Um, and being moralistic is when you, you apply moral principles to, to a situation which is very different from what you're used to, 
and you judge it without recognizing how different it was. So, yes, we, we can all, uh, without, uh, um, without expecting contradiction, we can all say we find uh, slavery abhorrent. Uh, but when we think about um, how English people regarded slavery in, in the year 1600, <coughs> we do have to take into account the fact uh, that slavery was an ancient and universal institution. Uh, to many people it seemed like a, a fact of life. And you could, you could uh, complain about slavery being uh, too inhumane, and you could say it needs to be more humane, but most people accepted as a fact of life, and it took time for people to to come to the view that this actually was a fact of life that needs to be removed. Um, so one needs to have a, a bit. One needs to have a. You need to, need to use your historical imagination to get out of your own skin and put yourselves in circumstances very, very different. And the same applies to the use of violence. Um, I mean, as a a Christian ethicist. Um, I'm not a pacifist. I, I believe that the use of violence can be justified, but um, the use of violence can only be justified uh, when it is absolutely necessary and when you don't use more of it than you really have to. Um, uh, however, when thinking about the past, I mean, right now we, we live in a society, uh, and um, I speak as someone who's 67 years old, born 10 years after the Second World War, we in this country have never had war come to us. We have fought wars overseas, but we've never had war come to us. Uh, and so we're accustomed to a, a, an unprecedented degree of security and actually health and wealth and prosperity. Um, but when thinking about the use of violence in the past, we need to remember that um, almost invariably states were much smaller, much more fragile, and generally speaking, society was much less secure. And under those conditions, it, it could sometimes be perfectly justified to uh, use more violence and to take greater risks in the use of violence. But again, we, we need to take ourselves out of our context, put ourselves in that context. And I suppose, you know, we, uh, Ukraine is a reminder to us that um, the kind of peace that we tend to regard as part of the cosmic furniture is not. Uh, and people not very far from us right now are suffering... Uh, grotesque violence uh, and in very insecure circumstances uh, and therefore they have to use a great deal of violence in response um, and in the past that was often the case. Professor Nigel Bigger, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Uh, thanks for this opportunity to uh, talk about some really important matters. <laughs>